You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. How old were you when you developed Tourette's? 12. What happened? Like, what was the first things you noticed about yourself? You originally want to fight this. You want to, like, imprison this energy just to make it stop. But my eventual tactic for it was to take that energy and move it throughout my entire body specifically to move it through the mechanics of my swimming. Do you feel you were able to hone it into the swimming and you succeeded at doing that? I have to believe that, mm -hmm. right? I want to believe that the approach of just trying to constantly suppress it or make it disappear doesn't work. And that giving this energy a place to go in a positive way was what led me to a lot of my success as an Olympic athlete. I've got Anthony Irvin <laughs> in the podcast, four-time Olympic gold medalist. Is that right? Or five-time? Five-time with the last one. No, no, no. I've only got three golds. Only three golds. You overshot me a little bit. <laughs> you don't want to overhype me. And also, you have a record of the biggest span between winning a gold here and a gold here. Yeah, there was, there was 16 years between my Olympic golds. There's all these weird records. This is kind of the funny thing. The oldest Olympic swimmer to win the gold. When I think oldest, I think someone who's going to be 60 years old. <laughs> but you were 35 then. Yep, so, 35 years old. Yeah, it became the oldest. But Olympic sports, Olympic athletes, is generally a young man's game. Yeah, because Michael Phelps is how old right now? I think he's 31 or 32. Yeah, so, so he's climbing. You broke his record, right, yep. of being the oldest. And also, oh, there's another record. You're the first African-American <laughs> Olympic gold medalist in swimming. You know, when you come from a sport where there hadn't been much diversity in the past, or at least not, no, nobody of African-American descent, so they wanted it. They wanted to say that it had been done so we can progress as a people. You're half black and half Jewish? Yep, to simplify it, sure, yeah. Which is a weird <laughs> record looking at you because you don't look black at all. Yeah, this is, uh, it came up a lot, you know, because once this little tidbit came out, it's like, oh, he's the first African-American 
And then everybody has to look at me and, and perceive me as other and be like, well, I, I never would have known. But now they see me as that or they're trying to figure it out. So right. you know, the optics of that change how I'm viewed as soon as somebody knows that about me. And then I guess Mark Spitz beats you out for first, or he, I don't know if he was the first or not, but he was certainly a Jewish swimmer, Olympic gold medalist in the 70s. Uh, yeah, he, what, he had seven gold medals in yeah. one Olympic games. Yeah, yeah, well, Michael Phelps beat his record. That's right. So, um, so I get, you know, then uh, what I want to get into, of course, is you, you, you had many struggles in those 16 years. You, you battled with uh, depression, addictions, um, you have uh, Tourette's, which is why you were in town. You were at this Tourette's charity that another prior podcast guest of this the show, Sheila Evans, was, I guess, sponsoring that uh, event or involved mm. with that event. So that's how we kind of connected. <laughs> and um, so you were battling with these things and, and probably other things during those 16 years and sort of came back strong to win another gold medal. So I want to talk about that. But how did you start getting into swimming in the first place? Oh, well, I grew up in Southern California, Los Angeles, and just the house we were born into, or that I was born into, um, we rented it, but there was a pool in the backyard. So, you know, uh, had to learn how to swim. You know, but, it's, it's a fact, you know, that it's the number two, which, you know, number two is, is still up there, but uh, accidental drowning is like how most people die when they're kids outside of really? car accidents. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, you like know, they just a, fall in the pool? Fall in the pool, no one's there to look, they don't know how to swim, bad things happen, you know? Okay, but a lot of kids have pools in the backyard, they don't become, uh, you know, three-time gold medalists. That's true, <laughs> I, I must have had a knack for it. And did you, did you when, how old were you when you kind of realized, oh, I'm going to do this every day? Mm, or did you ever do it every day? Oh, like, for sure, for sure. It was, I wasn't one of those kids that did multiple sports, I was, I was just swimming. And, um, you know, I, I was good at it right away. As soon as I started competing, I, I was fast and I showed a gift. And, you know, I made it through those early years and then I was really bad for a few years and then I got good again. And I, I kind of want to break that down. Like, you, 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 there's three things you said that, that are all interesting. <laughs> so you had a gift. What does that mean? Because I'm always interested, what's the relationship between talent and skill? Like, ultimately, to, to, re, to be the best in the world at something, what percentage at that point? What do you feel, and I know there's, it doesn't make sense percentages, but what percent do you feel was talent and what percent was skill and, and, and hard work? Well, talent I like to chalk up to an explanation for things that you don't understand or even somebody else who might be watching like, yeah, he or she is really talented. Like, well, you don't really know what that means. You just see the results. And that doesn't mean the athlete, even the athlete doesn't necessarily know what it is. They just know that they get the affirmation from the people around them that what they're doing is good by relative comparison. So yeah, I, I definitely had talent and I was a young kid and young kids have lots of energy. So whether that hard work manifested so deliberately and with conscientious like discipline on my own part, probably not that much, you know, but uh you know, discipline is a good thing, and that becomes more important, I think, as 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 I've gotten older. And so, so, but even even young. So you won your first set of gold medals at the age of nineteen. Um, even when you were, were very young, it must have. I mean, at what point did, did did a coach start getting involved? At what point did you kind of make the leap from understanding that okay, talent's not enough. I need I need now some some hard work and some help. Uh, I think the hard work was always there, but it was a matter of questioning the hard work you're being told to do because you don't necessarily know. It's like, well, is this the hard work that I need to be doing? Or I have a suspicion it might look a little bit differently. And that is where, you know, like good coaching comes in, of knowing where the hard work should be and where it shouldn't be. And, and what did you, what was one of the first things or one of the first things that you learned from a coach that surprised you that you never thought, oh, I need to learn this because this coach said so and, and he was correct? Hmm. Um, it's hard to say. I want to say, um, yeah, when I won my first Olympic gold medal, I had, I had just, I was just after my first year at college, you know, with a new coach and, you know, he obviously had a gift for, for getting his athletes to think about what they're doing differently as well as to get them as if they were rebellious, if they didn't necessarily want 
to be there. Like they struggled with their own like gift of being able to like do it correctly or do it the way other people expect them to do it. Um, of getting them to cooperate, you know, like he was, you know, as Mike Bottom, you know, he's a coach at University of Michigan now. And um, he was like a psychologist. He knew how to convince me to put in the work with psychology. It was- What does that mean? What does that mean? Like, you know, I was 19, I was rebellious. I didn't want to do anything. I wanted to go live my own life and be free. And he found a way to take that energy and like allowed me to like redirect it back into my craft. And how do you think he did that? How do I think he did that? Yeah, sorry to keep drilling this because this this is the key. This is the lock that opens yeah. the door to how uh, a coach and student work together to achieve. You know, mm-hmm. you're the best in the world. Yeah, well, I found that he's the one that became flexible. You know, as as the coach, if he wanted me to do A and I wasn't into A, he'd be, he'd he then go and create B. Be like, well, how about this? And you know, I'd get wore down a little bit, but I'm still like, I don't want to do B either. And then he'd come back and be like. How about C? You know, and maybe option C had nothing to do with being in the water. You know, maybe option C was let's go watch some videotape of past Olympians and see what we can learn from them. Hmm. We're like, oh, well, okay, maybe I'll do that. So as opposed to just the talent or the athlete constantly like using excuses to move further and further away from the path, create new ways of getting back to the path from another direction. So it's almost like he had this like tool chest of like techniques that he knew would work with his young athletes and he would try different ones and he knew each one when he could get some result from you, but if you enjoyed it, he can then kind of get you into the other things. Like if you said, if you started saying, oh, I noticed all these um, past mentalists were doing this and I don't do it, then he can say, okay, tomorrow we'll try this in the pool or whatever. Um, To a degree, to a degree, you know, some things he probably definitely know worked and some things he probably was just like, just being creative and you don't know what's necessarily gonna stick and and every student's gonna be different. You know, there's no one size fits all, certainly not with swimming, you know? And and yeah, you know, to, to a point you can imitate, you can imitate, you know, what the, the greats that have come before you have done, but at a certain point you need to stop the imitation and, and really try to create your own thing. And I think, that research development part happened really well in that university setting, but also that creative component, that was something that it has to be inspired from your environment and it has to, you have to like believe in it yourself and a good coach, a great coach can bring that to you. And, and so, so uh, at that point, did you start to get a sense that, oh, I'm heading to the Olympics, I have a chance here? Was that your goal? Um, I don't think I actually believed I was gonna go to the Olympics until just a few months beforehand. Mm. It seemed really far-fetched that, uh, that I can do that. It, it was- uh, Even though you were probably dominating at the college level? Yeah, well, it was, that was, it was after I went to college championships that year and won where I was like, well, maybe, maybe I can. No, but up until that point, you know, no. I mean, I was a good high school recruit, but I wasn't exactly on the radar. I didn't climb the rungs of like competitive merit the way other people did. You know, I had never been to a world championships before. I had never been to even like a like a junior world championships. You know, there's all these rungs. You know, there's there's like a hierarchy, and you know, each step of the way, and you know, at the summit is where the Olympic Games is supposed to be in our sport. But there's all these steps along the way where you kind of you learn the process and you get greater exposure and. And you come into these environments where you have to be able to produce your craft from all these other distractions. And I skipped a lot of them. You know, I didn't even have a passport when I made the Olympic team. I had no international experience. How does whatsoever. someone skip uh, in, in terms of the Olympics? Because doesn't the US Olympic Committee have to be aware of you and say, okay, this guy's on our team? Well, there's a trial. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go to, it's called Olympic trials. You just, you show up if you qualify and then you race in the top two people in every event go to the Olympics. So that's what I did. You know, I showed up without really a resume other than having just won college championships and made the Olympic team. And uh, anyone, I, can I show up? Anyone could show up? Oh, you have to qualify, but you okay. can certainly, you can, there, there's like a time standard. Uh-huh. And, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, if you trained, 
you, there, you, there is a goal there for a time standard, and if you if you get it, you can show up at Olympic trials for sure. Now you said you said, um, and I, I'm I don't know if you were talking about prior to age nineteen, but you said you had a few good years and a few bad years. What were the few bad years? Was were the, are you were you talking about before the age of nineteen? You had a few bad years. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like my my preteen years. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, a lot of things happened from just you know tension in the household, my parents. What sort of tension? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of, of course, probably personal stuff to deal with. But even from outside of that, you know, the economy took a dive. My dad lost his, got laid off. You know, so obviously money issues can create a lot of tension in the house. Um, I stopped performing well. I I developed Tourette's. You know, the Tourette's, that was that was a big thing there as well. How old were you when you developed Tourette's? I mean, it's kind of there from birth, but it sort of has many different forms. Mm, yeah, well, it didn't really seem to manifest itself until I was in like seventh grade, late seventh grade, eighth grade. So how old was I? What was it, like 12, something like that? Yeah. Just so, like, just like yeah. at the precipice of the, the beginning of puberty. And, and so that must have been like, so what, what happened? Like, what was the first things you noticed about yourself? Oh, I just, I couldn't stop blinking. It would just take over my mm -hmm. face. Mm -hmm. And when that's happening, I couldn't do anything else. You know, like I, I was a voracious reader as a kid and I couldn't even read. It was really debilitating. And, um, you know, obviously other people notice this. And so you become alienated from the people around you. Like, where I, I mean, this is such a horrible age, right? Like seventh and eighth grade, that's like the two right. worst years of my life. Like <laughs> what, what, I can't even imagine like what, the, what, what would the kids say? What would the other kids say? I don't remember much other than people that I thought I was friends with just growing more distant. And it wasn't that they were de like necessarily deliberately being harmful, but they didn't understand what was going on. And even an explanation of what a neurological disorder might be, that doesn't really compute very well with someone who's so young. So as with most things, even now, you know, if there's something I don't understand, but seems perhaps threatening or weird, like I'm not going to walk right up into it and be inquisitive. I'm going to like probably stand away. And so, um, so this, so, so were there other manifestations? So you were blinking a lot. What else was happening? Blinking a lot, just small motor tics that were beyond my control. And when it's beyond your control, what's happening in the brain? Like what's, what's the mechanism of Tourette's? I'm not entirely sure. I don't think there is consensus on exactly how or why it works. I mean, at one point it was that the dopamine, some of the dopamine circuits were just like overactive. So just like a lot of nervous energy running through the body and that energy needs to find an exit. And so the exits that it was finding for me was it was through my eyes, through my jaw, through my neck. And, um, you know, it took a long time because you originally want to fight this and you want to like imprison this energy just to, just to make it stop. But my, I think my, my eventual tactic for it was to take that energy and like move it throughout my entire body specifically to move it into my swimming, through the mechanics of my swimming, to use that energy to, to feel the water, to feel the forces pushing against me, to feel the forces that I am pulling and to somehow make them work together and constantly getting more, like so testing that, for more. That's really interesting. It's like you take this um, overexcited dopamine thing that's happening to you and sort of use it as a, as a weapon to make this, and you were able to do it. A lot of people with Tourette's, I guess can't do that or don't have that outlet, but do you feel you were able to to kind of hone it into the swimming and 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 you succeeded at doing that? I have to believe that, mm -hmm. right? You know, things that happen can either happen to, in spite of or because of, and you know, I want to believe that this negative thing that the approach of just trying to constantly suppress it or lock it down or or make it disappear just that doesn't work. And that giving this energy a place to go, like in a positive way, was what led me to a lot of my success. You know, like just from a physiological level. Obviously, it takes a village in all kinds of ways to, to you know, to get one person to the Olympics. Um, but you know, just from a physiology, you know, like a lot of the other pieces of talent that would be obvious for athletes, like just being super tall or, or super strong or super athletic. Um, they weren't there for me. So there had to have been something else. And I think that the Tourette's became, yeah, I had to be able to turn my body into a vehicle because trying to make it into a rock that didn't move, that didn't react, 
that's when the Tourette's came out the worst. Did you consciously make that decision like at the age of 13 or did a coach kind of help you? Of course not. Mm -hmm. At 13, I mean, not, not that I can exactly remember too much of what it's like to be a 13-year-old. Oh, I can remember what it's like to be a 13-year-old. <laughs> it's really unpleasant. Yeah, well, it had its ups and downs. I found out who my, who my friends were through all that. And uh, so that was good. But was it conscious? No, but I did know that if I, in the pool, no one can see me like ticking. Um, the ticks themselves like weren't really manifesting themselves if I just like exercised. <laughs> if I'm like pumping the bellows and doing things that require energy, then they would largely go away. It's when I was at rest or just trying to have like a conversation or that's when they really came out. Would it come out because you were like nervous or stressed? For sure, it would get way worse if I was nervous or stressed. So like if you were talking to a girl at the age of 14, would it suddenly things start to happen more than usual? Yeah, or even just thinking about it, it's like, should I walk up to her now and ask her? Huh. Just start fluttering right away. And clearly that it, it would, that, would it ever work out? <laughs> uh, nope, I remember being quite young and single for a long time. <laughs> well, um, so this was during a time when your swimming was going down a little bit. Was that because you were now switching from kind of like this natural gifted ability you have to, to more intense coaching? And I, I, I kind of find with a lot of people I talk to that when they start learning technique, um, you know, just the learning of technique and, and, and getting rid of bad habits that the skills go down at first. When you learn, it kind of takes, there's like this learning valley where it takes like six months to absorb what you're learning. Okay, so I think that's definitely true. And I'd rather apply that logic of reasoning to like some later career stuff. Um, but not necessarily for this period of time. I think there was just so much going on. So much about trying to figure out who oneself is at 13. I mean, that's a quest that goes on forever. But certainly then, um, you know, socialization seemed to hit like a, a new point and the onset of puberty and just like hormones and trying to get control of them um, with this other thing of Tourette's all, all mixed in. It just um, it did not lead to one to, to necessarily do things with confidence. And so, yeah, you know, like my performances went down for a while. I don't think it was necessarily technical. I think as a sport, swimming is heavily, heavily training based. There's far less technique than there are in, you know, like your, your next guest, you know, like there's, there's a lot of technique in, in wrestling or jujitsu or any of these martial arts. Um, but swimming, there's, there's so few techniques. We have four strokes really. And then everything else is just like train, 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 train. And, um, which requires a discipline. It requires a discipline or, and, uh, you know, you can't really collapse in the pool, you know, so like you can train to the point where you're falling apart. And if you were running, you would eventually just stop running and like sit down. You can't really do that in the pool. I don't know. When I, <laughs> when I go a few laps in the pool, I, I stop. <laughs> uh, well, when you're in a pool with like eight other people grinding it out as well, like you don't want them swimming over you. Or if you're in a race, you just, you just, you just start sinking and turning vertical, but you have to get to the wall. And then so you win, you get to the Olympics. Were you surprised to be in the Olympics? Was it like, oh my gosh, here I am? Mm. Or were you, or, or, or is there, is there kind of like almost like a self hypnosis that you put yourself into that? Okay, I'm not going to think about this in a uh, glamorous way yet. I'm just focused on here and now. I think that's the ideal. That's the ideal. Do they tell you to do it that way or is that? No, um, yeah, but easier said than done, right? Mm -hmm. To like achieve that like fugue state where mm -hmm. you're, you know, you just let your training take over and you ignore all the loaded meaningfulness of where you are and why. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's something you try to achieve, but yeah, easier said than done. No, I think that uh, I was a little bit surprised. More so than that, the battles that I had to deal with there were dealing with failed expectations of myself. So like I, I thought it was gonna go one way, doesn't go that way. Well, how do you how do you deal with that? Like what? Well, for instance, in, in my first Olympics, you know, I was on the, a relay, you know, four guys working together and to try to put uh, USA on top. And we had won this relay ever since it had been in the Olympics. There was a legacy. 
and we got defeated. And like, I was on that relay. I thought it was my fault. Do you think it was your fault because you were sort of like the new guy who didn't go up through the ranks? Did ever, did other people blame you? Uh, no, nobody blamed me. Everybody was much more, was like really mature. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was the young one there. And, but, you know, like in my mind, I was like, I'm going to win a gold medal. You know, like it's going to happen. It's going to be automatic because that's what we're supposed to do here. And it, that didn't happen. So to have reality come and completely destroy my expectations, um, I was like, well, what now? And, what, what do I do now? And, and the what now is referring literally probably to the next day. You had a race probably. It was like four days later. But uh-huh. yeah, yeah, I had four days to somehow learn from my mistake and prepare myself for this one next race. I think, I think other guys have to go. They have to, most Olympians have to go to the Olympics once so they can break apart what they thought the Olympics was gonna be to like demystify it so they can go back the second time and actually, you know, get on that podium in the way that that they dream. Or no, it's, it's you you discard the dream and replace it with a real plan, like a plan that you that you think is actually going to work. So and, it, and you had to do it in four days. <laughs> I did it in four days. I don't know how most people it, it takes a second Olympic Games, but for me, I managed to to learn the lesson and implement it in four days. Well, what, what, if there's a way to describe, it, what was the lesson that you learned, or or how did you kind of get again get back into the here and now? to focus on the race that you were actually gonna be in? Well, for one, that uh, nothing's guaranteed. So uh, any kind of expectations of a results are meaningless. They can only work against you. Um, but more so than that, I really thought I was rattled by what somebody else did, what my competitor did. And I mean, this is swimming, it's a race. There's nothing that your competitors should be able to do that has an effect on you one way or another. It's not like tennis. They don't touch you. They don't They're touch not really you. competing against you in a weird way. No, you're it's competing like against fight. yourself. Right. You're trying to put together your best performance of you. It has nothing to do with anybody else. And I hadn't learned that quite yet. I had four days to like resolve it and just be my own best self. And how, again, I think that's true for most areas of life. Like whatever you want to succeed in, you, you really kind of have to view it as a game inside of yourself and did you have someone to talk to during these four days obviously you had the the team coach but did you have like your personal coach there who knew you really well or like what what were like was there any um triggering moment that you were like okay i'm starting to figure this out yeah for sure i mean i had i had my coaches there i had friends and teammates that i trained with you know some of them were uh, americans but some of them came from other countries and you know Mm -hmm. like they were they were instrumental and helping like support me through that time. And they were the ones who kind of kept saying, you know, refocus or just, you know, nothing's guaranteed. Like what, what were they, what, what sort of things were they saying to you? I don't remember if they were necessarily saying anything that couldn't be just like, you know, cast off as like a, as a cliche, you know, like, you know, like, oh, like, oh, just forget about it and move on. You know, of course, I'm sure that stuff was being said, but probably more importantly was to, to treat me as I was normally, and to that allowed me to see that the, the specter of what I thought had gone wrong um, couldn't have nearly as much of a grip on me. And then for the next race, right before you're going to begin, was this the 50 meter? Yes. So, so this next race, right before you're, you're, you're uh, going on, do you then, it, what, what kind of pregame mental thing do you do? No, it really, it's just, um, you no. Know, the, the 50 free, it's 21 seconds and change. I don't breathe at all. Um, there's like one pretty important technical piece of the start in the beginning. And then you just swim for like, you know, 35, 40 meters until you get to the end. There's not much time for thinking. So beforehand, I'm just going through just very idiosyncratically, just like the mechanisms of what I'm going to do from A to B to C to E to F to G to H. I, you know, I may have missed a few letters there, but are there that many letters in that in forty meters? <laughs> I mean, you get my point that like there, there's a line. You're traveling along a line, and every part of that line, you're you're doing something, and you want to make sure that you're doing what you plan to do. And so I'm just I'm going through it in my head of all the things. And you know, in, in the race before that, you know, in the semifinals, I had a plan and I did that. And you know, you leave a little piece of your awareness there so you can uh, take in what it was that happened, and then you kind of like redraft it for the next race. So it's interesting because I would think 
being totally naive about it, I would think with swimming, you just jump in the in the pool, you know, you dive as far as you can, and then you swim as fast as you can, and then it's over. But you're saying with each part, there might be something a little slightly different that you do that you have to plan for. Is that is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. So like like halfway through, what are you doing differently than two thirds of the way through? Well, halfway through, you're going, um, or two th- thirds of the way through, you're going slower than you were at halfway through. You know, automatically? The, automatically. Oh. Automatically, because it's only one length of the pool. The moment that you like jump off the block, you're going as fast as you're going to go. From that point forward, you're just dealing with slowing down as, um, as efficiently as possible. <laughs> Or so with losing as little speed as possible through the length of that 50. So is it kind of like that book, The Inner Game of Tennis, where you sort of visualize everything in advance uh, and keep on visualizing it and then you're then you're in it and you have to do your, like you say, do your plan? Yeah, I haven't read this book, but that, that sounds about right. Mm. Yeah, like you, you plan it out, you know what you're going to be feeling for, and then you just, when the race starts, you execute. Have you done that sort of visualization in other areas of your life, like since then? Like, let's say you you played you played music for a while, you played guitar for a while. Would you yeah. would you would you do that sort of visualization before you went on stage? Um, go on stage. I mean, that's a that's a stretch. Before you went in front of a <laughs> drunken well, bar yeah, of people, house party of people and friends. Um, absolutely. You know, like. There is a quality of memorization that visualization requires. So you you memorize like how you proceed on this path, and I think yeah, like playing guitar, playing a song is like that as well. But I mean, one of the more beautiful things about music is that you don't have to be hung up on that. You can allow something creative to come out as long as it stays in the rhythm. Um, but that's like you know music and harmony, and and I guess every once in a while. You try to give space for that to happen in sport as well, because you may discover something new, and that can that ultimately has to be what makes you better. Just discovering something new. So, so you win these gold medals. If you're, at, it must have felt like the peak of your life, right? Like I can't even imagine at all what it must feel like. Uh, I mean, you're 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 like a hero. So, what happens then? You're only 19 years old. Oh man. Um, yeah, I quickly fell off the mountain. You know, I, it's funny because I really, when I was a kid and I dreamed of going to the Olympics and swimming so fast, um, like that was it. I didn't really think about what comes after that, what that actually is supposed to mean. I wasn't prepared for this, like this mantle of responsibility of of people wanting to know this and that. How did I do it? What is like to be African American? You know, what is like? To, oh my God! What is it like to be a Jew? I'm like, what's a Jew? You know, like uh, I wasn't prepared for any of that because I really felt that I was an uninteresting person with a relatively private life, just a few, a close circle of a few friends. You know, but then. Um, but now you're like an Olympic gold medalist, yeah, which gr- puts you on the map forever. It puts you on the map. No, not 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 necessarily forever. I guess it depends on what community I'm, I'm wandering around in. I'm walk, when I'm walking through the street, no one, no one ever recognizes me. I don't consider myself a celebrity or anything like that. Um, but yeah, but there is there is a responsibility that comes with that, and I wasn't ready for it. I was only 19. I was still trying to figure things out. I still wanted to make a lot of mistakes, and I didn't want to do it uh, in the public eye. But you did. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> to some extent, to, to some extent, I did. Um, but largely, I'd like to think that I discarded the mantle before going and doing uh, much of it. But for the next 16 years, what did you do? I mean, you came back to win a gold medal 16 years later. Yeah. What, what did you do in those 16 years? Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. What did you do in those 16 years? Well, yeah, I know a little bit about it, but yeah, yeah. why well, don't you say I, um, it? <laughs> Let's see, you know, I finished my college eligibility, so I did four years of that, and then I then I quit swimming. I retired, and you know, I started getting into music. I dropped out of college, and uh, yeah, I was just good like, for you. I don't. Yeah. I, I think most people should do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know why I was there, so might as well stop. Like when you got back to college, were you like a hero? <laughs> was I a hero? No, like oh. I was like living on the floor of a co-op. Uh, mm. No, with nothing, you know, just trying to to figure it out. No, it was, but it was great. At least I had I had purpose when I went back to school. Like I got straight A's. It seemed super easy mm. when I went back because I knew why I was there and I wasn't distracted by, 
all the social growing that when I was younger I needed at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean that was something I did too. I, I moved to New York City for uh, for a few years where I learned a lot. What'd you learn? What'd you do here? How'd what you make I, a, it cost money to live here? How'd you live here? I moved here with uh, about sixty dollars, one bag full of clothes, and a guitar. Does does that like suck? Do you go around saying, um, "Hey, I'm a gold medalist"? No, no, no. I, I need stuff. No, I've got I've got a few really good friends who uh, it, it was like months before they knew I had this like past as a, as an Olympic athlete. Huh. I just like I hit it. I just wanted to be not known. I wanted to have no renown. Why is that? I found comfort in it. I found comfort in it. But wouldn't you be proud of what you did? Um, I may have been proud in what I did, but I rarely felt that other people recognized it the same way. You didn't want to seem like you were bragging, like here you are in this group and you're the Olympic gold medalist. <laughs> I know I keep repeating that phrase. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, it does. It can become a bit of a conversation killer for me because <laughs> all of a sudden I'm outed. You know, it's like all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm pulled out and displayed before everybody. And it's like, oh man, okay, now I got to be that for everybody, <laughs> whatever that means. And But then generally some people are quick to tell me what they think that means. What were some of the things that they would say? I don't know. I don't know. That's that's not for that's not for me. I don't necessarily remember. But uh, this is when I was younger, right? Yeah. So I was a lot more sensitive. My skin was not so thick. And was Tourette still affecting you now, now that you had, particularly since you were no longer swimming as much and using that energy? No, no. That's uh, as soon as I got to college, you know, or not as soon as about after my sophomore year, I decided to like take myself off my medication because it was just like these these tranquilizers that just bonked me. Like I'd take them and I'd fall asleep, you know, at two in the afternoon. And then I'd take them at night to fall asleep at night. Um, they were just, the medication itself became almost as bad as the symptoms. And I hadn't been noticing any symptoms unless it was a, a really stressful situation. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to quit these meds. And I started self medicating with marijuana, you know, but really I think that just that made me happy at the time. And there is a correlation between stress and, um, and the Tourette's really manifesting itself in a negative way. And uh, marijuana is probably like a, a anti-stress sort of drug. That's what they say. I, you know, I, I told true? myself a lot of things uh, <laughs> when I wanted to smoke weed all the time because I didn't want to have any responsibilities. Um, you know, but uh, is it true? Yeah, it's true. It's true for me. Was it true for me now? No. No. If I like. I smoke weed now. I get like so much anxiety. Really? Yeah. I just started thinking but, about all the things I have to do, and I was like, it's incessant. And then are there I'm, like strains of marijuana though? Like one strain is the more kind of creative slash anxiety producing, and the other strain is more relaxing, you know, anti-anxiety. Yeah, that's that's what I hear, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. It's um, I really just like to to drink coffee now, and that's uh, your drug. That's my drug. It's coffee. <laughs> And and okay, so so what made you decide to get back? Sixteen years later, what makes you decide to get back into? Oh, I'm gonna suddenly go to the Olympics again. Well, it wasn't quite sixteen years later, but in 2010, I had just started grad school, and um, for what? It was the program was called the Cultural Study of Sport and Education. It's an MA program at Berkeley, and um, you know, it's anthropology based, but you know, we we focus a lot about college sports, so like the NC2A, um, the ins and outs of that. And um, our final our final assignment in our theoretical foundations course was to kind of like write an autobiography of our life in sport. And so I had all this like undealt with baggage from when you know I had essentially I'd quit and then I went into this this world of just like, I'm just gonna be an artist and I'm gonna try to transmute all my my feels and thoughts into vague poetries and music um, that might be understood. Um, but I'd never dealt with so many of them specifically, specific to me. And what do you uh, mean? Well, just like all all the things I'd gone through, all the things I, all the anxieties and the alienations, and all of my personal failings, how I felt to live up to, how I failed to live up to society's expectations, expectations I put on myself. You know, all these things, baggage. Like what? Well, and I'm sorry if I'm I'm doing this, but what what expectation did you put on yourself uh, during these years? That you failed to live up to. Um, it's hard to tell because I dealt with the baggage. 
Um, but hmm, you really want examples, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not for any kind of um, dramatic point, but I just so I understand what you were what, what you were writing about, what was what was starting to come up that eventually led to your return. Um, well, I guess uh, dealing with the mantle of being first African American, dealing with the mantle of of just being Olympic champion of not being the role model other people, or I would have expected for other people because I wasn't ready. Um, things I did while depressed, you know, like I tried to commit suicide, you know, it was, it was, it was a pretty seriously dark well that I was in for a while. How did you try to commit suicide? I took all my XRS medication, like all at once. I took a handful of pills. And is it, did you have, a, did you read that if you took all of them, that that would kill yourself? Did you have a sense that that would kill yourself or were no, there more cry I, about? I, I had, I had no idea. So then. Doesn't seem like a bunch of Tourette's medication would be the automatic way I would think to kill myself. Well, the medication, well, it was an antihypertensive. So it was to, it was, it was to deal with hearts, with bad hearts. So I thought it would just stop my heart. Um, you know, lo and behold, when I wake up the next day alive, and then I look it up to see if it can kill me, and I was like, you're, you know, like it can't. And then I really felt stupid. Then I really did, did you like, feel anything at all differently when you woke up? <laughs> oh yeah, dude, I had a like, like I, it, it was in, in a way it worked. Like a part of me did die, and um, you know, and I let it go, and I was a new person, and um, I was able to really start moving forward. Then you know, like I. I really started to march my way out of depression at that point. And 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 why? Because did you feel like, oh, this is a new lease on life? Or yeah, I felt incredibly lucky that I'd been so stupid and wrong. <laughs> it sounds like if you really wanted to, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying this is less than a suicide attempt because obviously it was, but it sounds like you could have Googled probably better beforehand how to kill yourself than afterwards. Uh, so see, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't, I mean, there was a serious disconnect between myself and the rest of the world, you know? So looking up ways of, uh, of like how to do this, so like doing research, I, I don't know. I just, it, that wasn't striking the chord. And, and what was the critical moment that said, okay, tonight's the night. I'm just going to take all these pills. Like, what were you, what were you feeling like right before then? I don't know. I just remember that every day was the same. Every day just sucked. Hmm. I don't know what it was about that day. What were you doing exactly that moment in your in time? I mean, not 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 that day, but like in general. Um, like, why did every day suck? Why was why were they all the same? Was it a, cl a clinical depression? Were you? Uh, unemployed and trying sure. to figure out what to do. For sure, I was uh, I was still in school, so mm -hmm. I, this is before I dropped out or mm -hmm. anything like that. I was still in school, still still trying to hold on to my collegiate athletic career. Um, yeah, it was, it was like it was like my junior year, and uh, I just wasn't doing anything. I was just staying in bed all the time. Uh, I lived in like a dank, dirty place that. You know, and a roommate that seemed like not super helpful most of the time. Um, but my distance from my friends and peers was just getting wider and wider and wider. Mm. It's all I really remember, you know, because my memory of those times really starts to get staggered is from a, like a time point of view. And it becomes about mm, like strains of experience rather than like being able to chronologically piece things things together too well. And so after this point and you start kind of climbing out of the depression, at what point do you decide, uh, and this maybe is much later, but at what point do you decide, okay, I'm gonna get back to this thing which gave me such pleasure as a as a child? Oh, um, that was seven years later. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I'm like, I'm unpacking all this stuff um, by writing to myself uh, as a paper. And... Um, I finally got it done and there was this immediate sense of catharsis and completion and I smoked my last cigarette and uh, yeah, I'd been smoking cigarettes for years and I'd been trying to quit for years as well unsuccessfully and this time I really wanted to but I knew that I couldn't just eliminate this energy source of uh, the, the nicotine addiction uh, without replacing it and so grand Gaining or granted that I had just 
done all this writing. I was like, well, let's just get back into the water. And I, I really just did it for like my health and to help me quit smoking. It wasn't like I had aspirations to go back to the Olympics or anything like that. That couldn't have been further from the truth. And even when I did start working with a coach again, they knew how fragile I was and that if they held up this, uh, the possibility that I might still have a gift, that I could still go back to the Olympics, you know, the coach, Terry McKeever, she was like, really? She knew not to do that. She knew that it would, I was still too fragile for it at that point. So what would she do? What would she, she would just push a little bit, like just get you back in the water? Yeah, just having like enjoying myself and um, knowing that just pushing, continually pushing my limits of like seeing where I am and trying to get better, that that was, that was still there and I was doing it on my own. She didn't need to create or present before me goals to reach because I was, I was manifesting it through the swimming already. And did you did you find was this the biggest relief from the depression? Were you taking antidepressants at this oh, time? Oh no, no, I I kicked the depression as soon as I quit swimming. You know, and I was just doing music. I was just you know, you know, that's a cliche. I was like a tortured artist, but I, I didn't even feel that tortured. Like I felt I was definitely happier and having a good time. You know, were, were you able years. to take the discipline of training and swimming to training guitar? Um, some yeah. But I was so far behind that, you know, like my, my friends that I played music with, you know, they had been playing for years and they had more talent. And so I like, I had to like fight to get the small amount of skill that I had. Um, but really it was, it was such a pleasure those days. You know, I did have a craving to try to express something I didn't understand. You know, and that's why I thought I was an artist. Um, but it really became about those original people that I formed a band with because they were just friends. And every once in a while we like locked in and created something awesome and, we had a ton of fun. We partied a lot, and uh, you know, like I still see like a few of those guys regularly. Do you want to go back to that eventually? Nah, no. Music for me now is just—it's nostalgia. It reminds me of a time. And so, so okay, so you're you're being coached. You're kind of getting your confidence back on the swimming. Mm -hmm. When did you finally realize? Oh, I might actually go back to the Olympics. <laughs> um. Let's see. So my my coach Terry, she had she had convinced me that I might want to just go to Olympic trials, uh, just to like watch it. She's like, "Oh, it's a totally different thing now," and it is. Before it was just like a swim meet, and now it's a bit of a it's an event. You know, they're they're like flamethrowers and like lasers and stuff. It was it was it was a real like event. You know, with the with the with why the they do that? E. Just for TV? I think so. Yeah, it was part of the Michael Phelps factor. I think. You know, they really tried to make it, uh, they really tried to make the sport something more for him and for the young people that were going to come into it because of his accomplishments. Mm -hmm. um, so she had convinced me, she's like, yeah, I come out of retirement, which means I make myself open uh, and ready for drug testing. And, and she's like, just, you just want to go. Like, don't worry about like how your performance is. You're just going to want to go and see it and see how, where our sport has, has come and since you've been gone. And so I'm like, okay, okay. And then at my first meet that I could actually compete at, I hadn't, um, I had been back on rent for a couple months. And uh, back on rent? Then, like, I hadn't paid rent. Like, mm -hmm. I was short on money. Mm -hmm. And so I, I owed my roommate money. And, um, and there was this meet in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, that they paid you if you won or got second or third. And it was like professional. And so uh, I was like, man, I, I might as well try. So I went there and you know, I, got, I took home one W and one, uh, one second place and I was able to pay the rent. And so I was like, wow. You know, like I hadn't really raced up into that point in, at a super high level against like high level competitors. And so then I kind of knew, I was like, well, there might be something here. And then I, I went and asked uh, you know, another coach if I can join them in the team at the Olympic Training Center. And so I committed myself to just like what six months of full time training. I was working a couple of part time jobs. They were super cool about it and let me like cut my hours down. They don't pay you to uh, join the team and, and train with them. No, no, not not in the U.S. No, a lot a lot of teams charge you. <laughs> Was everybody rich who goes to the Olympics? Is it, no, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> I'm in close. I think if everybody if everybody was, there everybody would be a little bit older and yeah. would still keep doing it. Yeah. Um, I think real life is what 
makes a lot of Olympians and wanting to progress in real life, like, you know, have a family and a, and a career that you aren't being rewarded exclusively from past performance. So how hard is it for many of these people to do it? Because if you're taking six months off, that's, you have to have savings or built up. Or have, some time must have elapsed to have built up that savings. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was still in uh, in grad school, you know, so um, I able I was able to pay the rent and I put together a few clinics where like I started teaching and you know, like started teaching my techniques to kids and you know clubs were able to fundraise funds for that mm. and um, yeah like so I mean I was fine you know I, I lived with a friend who you know he had an apartment uh, that was really cheap so you know it was really just a one bedroom but we split it into two and had a mattress on the floor you find ways you know mm. I, I found ways and. Um, yeah, you know, six months later, I was uh, on my way to London in 2012 for that Olympics, which was totally surprising. I didn't expect to make it, and um, you know, I did not perform super well while I was there, probably because I, I didn't believe I belonged there. Because of the age factor, or just because it, there was no plan. There was no plan. I was just I was still so raw, and um, I was undeveloped, really. So this is almost like the experience you were describing before of like a first Olympics. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so after that, I was kind of like, well, maybe I, I still can, but you know, maybe instead of six months of preparing, let's try four years. <laughs> and then four years later, I win in Rio. And then what was that like again? Being being the being an old man of thirty five, the <laughs> oldest ever yeah. to win uh, a gold medal for swimming. I mean, uh, it was surprising. You know, like I said, I was just. Um, you know, you just try to be your own best performance. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. Um, so to find that I had won was it was surprising. It was also surreal. You know, because I did this before and now it is again. Um, and then like that, you know, like the euphoria is kind of gone because then you know you have to climb out and go like address the press and like have words to say. And you, but you're probably much more mature at this point with it. Like you probably, because you yeah, had absorbed yeah, yeah. so much experience since the last time. For sure, for sure. And it was a much more significant event in a weird way because of the age and the comeback. Like there's a, there's a whole story around it now. Like there's the, the arc of the hero around this. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. George Foreman at 40 winning the t heavyweight title. Yeah, I guess when you put it that way, you know, like maybe there was more to it. But I was just trying to just keep up with the momentum of it. You know, I had a lot of people that came out there. My brother came. He missed the other Olympics either because he was too young and in trouble, or you know, he had, and he had just had um, he had just had a son. You know, so like I, I asked my parents to stay and take care of their grandkids so my brother can finally come to the Olympics. He was there. A bunch of my friends came out. You know, so to do the lap and to see them was great. Um, yeah, man, there's so many people that really helped me. And I think that's an important thing. Like on the one hand, you have the talent. On the other hand, um, there's the coach and there's the coaching techniques. Then there's this sort of visualization part. But you've mentioned a couple of times, there's really this gr group of people, who, who the people who are close to you. I think uh, uh, to perform at, at the highest level, you can't afford to have people bringing you down in, in some way. Like, did you find that there was a period where you had to kind of eliminate toxic people in your life? Um, sure, but not really during that preparation time. It's kind of amazing because when when you're pursuing that goal, you have to become really um, like selfish, you know, like with with your time. You know, like our time is kind of like our true economy, right? How we give it away, how we use it, and I really had to invest it into just my craft and. Like all of my family and my friends, they they like understood and encouraged it, um, and a lot of the help that was given to me as well was just like just take it, just take it, and like good luck. Um, so like once it was done, rather I, I just I wanted to make sure I gave back to them to give back some of that time that I'd kept exclusively for myself. And I mean, I want to believe that they were with me along the way, you know, like. Some of them came to Rio, or they were watching from home. Um, but in, I want to believe they're there with me. And now, uh, 2020, you're gonna go. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. gonna go back. Yeah, I really thought 2016 was gonna be the end, but uh, I refuse. I don't. I don't want to end on top. I I want the lesson of what it's like to be, you know, like um, replaced by the next generation. 
And I think I'd hope I'd like to think at least maybe this is a vanity, but that I have a lot to teach and contribute to the upcoming generations. So what do you do now? Like, are you still preparing a lot for 2020? Or <laughs> well, here and there, I've been uh, I've been doing a lot of traveling and teaching, um, but also learning. So I've been trying to gather some techniques so I can get into a real training mode again. But uh, mostly, I've been going up and down our great country and also around the world, just like teaching uh, swimming, how I think about it. How do you think about it differently than others? What does it mean gathering techniques? Gathering techniques? Well, I definitely don't think I'm anywhere near my potential. I don't think anybody is near their potential. I, I think I think we're all bad swimmers. Um, but you could say that maybe about, do you think that's a good way of thinking for, for any field of life? Like of course. To have a certain humility towards it, or like a beginner's mind? Yeah. Yeah, 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 right. Like nobody should know. You sh you should only be able to know your own limits, um, and know that it's completely realistic to try to extend them. Do you think people sometimes think they have too many limitations? How do you find the right balance? Mm, yeah, well, one step at a time, right? You just take one step forward. If there's too many limitations, it's because you're taking you're looking too far in front of you. Mm. Um, yeah. That's, a, that's kind of a quotable quote. Is it? <laughs> if there's too many limitations, you're probably looking too many steps in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Anthony Irvin, uh, you were just at the Tourette syndrome, you know, <laughs> thing. Is there something Tourette's you want to? Association of Tourette's America. Association of America. Yeah. Should people donate to it? Like, what's? Uh, sure. Let, well, let's, let's have a call to action somewhere in here. For sure. Well, as far as Tourette's, if you know anybody with it, um, be sympathetic. Uh, that uh, they aren't in complete control of what's going on, and um, you know, to understand, to bring awareness is to really absolve a lot of that stress that causes these the ticks to come out. So, and what if uh, someone's listening to this and saying, you know, for I did something when I was eighteen, and now I'm in my thirties. I'd like to try it again, but I've got that mortgage. I've got this, uh, all these responsibilities. I can't possibly do what I was interested in when I was eighteen. You went ahead and did it despite all odds yeah. as cliche as it sounds what 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 how should they think um well if you had it before um it's still in you for one and you might not think that you have the time but uh you can wake up earlier <laughs> yeah that's a good point how many hours of sleep do you get a night most of the time between four and five i'd say really most people yeah. need like eight no it's very rare for me these days Wait, why don't you need eight Think it's a um, no, I thing. think I think I want eight, uh -huh. um, but um, I I probably only really need four to five, you know, five five days a week, six days a week. Is that because you're a super athlete, or is, no. is always you've been that way? No, 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 no. I probably just because uh, I have a lot of things I want to try to get done, and and staying asleep doesn't really help most of the time. And and what do you eat? Like, what what do you eat during the day? What do I eat? I just I'm curious what uh, I eat, Olympic gold medalist eats. Oh, oh man. <laughs> Well, it depends on what season I'm in, man, right? You know, if I'm trying to, I'm small, mm -hmm. like of, of stature, like I'm physically small. And when I get into real training, I'm constantly trying to gain weight. So I'm like force feeding myself. That means I'll eat anything if it's going to put weight on me. Um, and then- Won't weight slow you down in the pool? Not me. I'm not one of those guys that gets big too easily. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of work for me to gain weight. And then as soon as I stop force feeding myself, it just, it just goes away. Mm -hmm. That's just me. Everybody's different. I know I've known athletes that they have one peanut butter sandwich. It go. It's like a pound right there mm -hmm. instantly, like on their body, you know. And but but that that's not me. I have to. I always have to fight my way up in weight, um, you know. As well as in the competitive environment, there's something to be said of being able to let go of what you think you need and use what you have because. Um, there's a lot of the better you get, the more control you get over your environments. But at the top environment, you always have far less control than you would want. So being able to like roll with those uh, those like environmental factors that you have no control over and have nothing to do with their actual craft, and that includes the food you eat, you just got to be able to go with it because you don't want that to be the the dumb little thing that gets in your way of being your best self. Meaning, like you need to eat. Correctly at that no. low moments, or, eat or whatever, just... eat whatever is there because mm -hmm. it's really it's all you got, and complaining is just going to hold you back. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks once again, uh, Anthony, for coming on the podcast, and uh, I really appreciate you spending the time. I know you're in town only for a short while, so really appreciate you coming by. Well, thanks. Thanks for the interview. I hadn't talked about a lot of this stuff in a while, so good. <laughs> 
next time on The James Altucher Show. You and your brother, Ken, really started ultimate fighting, MMA. You really brought it to the public's attention. You were like a legend in the space. You were winning every title. I mean, how many titles did you win? I think I won them all. Yeah. <laughs> so you're 16, you're causing trouble, you get sent to jail. But why are you such a bad kid? I didn't know that the things that were going on in my house by way of punishments and stuff were abuse. I was 11. All I knew was I was an emotional basket case. I couldn't hold anything together for more than a few days. No sport, no activities. I would just fall apart. So when I left my home, first thing I learned was crime was a tool to get out of your home and protect you. So the first time I was ever able to leave my home, I was 11, and I went and did 10 days in juvenile hall. Oh my gosh. And it was the first time I was away from my family. I was hanging out with all the bad kids, and I was talking to them, and I'm like, man, like, well, how do you guys deal with being locked in the closet and stuff? And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, you don't get locked in the closet? And I realized I have to leave my home. I went and saw the counselor, and she's like, well, if you keep this crime up, we're going to take you out of your home. And I was like, bingo. So I just kept doing it, and then they came and took me. And then the problem was I learned that crime was a tool to change my situation. Wow, so, so that's when things change. Hey, if you like this episode and want to hear more from The James Altucher Show, then subscribe and leave a review to help other people find the show. I would so appreciate it, and it's really important. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.